The first Bible reading comes from Zechariah chapter 4 verses 1 to 14 and can be found on page 950 of the Pew Bibles. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountains? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? Again I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. The second reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, and can be found on page 1221 of the Pew Bibles. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. 
But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray as we come to that word now that your spirit would be our teacher and guide and that it would lead us into all truth for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it is an absolute privilege and a delight to be with you this morning to be a guest preacher in your Minor Prophet series. Uh, as Justin mentioned, I have a particular interest in the book of Zechariah. Um, I can tell you everything you never wanted to know about the book of Zechariah, but I won't do that this morning. Uh, my aim is to give you an overview of the entire book in 20 minutes. Um, I recognise that the book of Zechariah is unfamiliar territory to many Christians. It contains visions which are, let's face it, bizarre. They are difficult to understand and it's, it's even more so difficult because it's addressed to a community who are um, hundreds and hundreds of years separated from us in time and its main concerns are things that don't concern us. It's got a, a real focus on issues to do with the temple and ritual purity and fasting, things that seem of little relevance to us now that Christ has come. So, let me stress up front that this book really is very important for us. And the reason why it's important is because it was written to a people who were living in the gap between promise and fulfilment. And that's where we are too. I'll come back to that idea. Let me explain the gap for Zechariah's first hearers. I need to talk about what had happened to them in the years leading up to when Zechariah was written. And to do that, I want to, want to focus you on three key dates. They're listed there in the sermon outline on page 8. First date, 586 BC. 586 BC was a black-letter day in the history of Israel. That was the year that the Babylonian armies destroyed the city of Jerusalem. In the space of a month, the people of God lost everything. God withdrew his presence from the city. The city of Jerusalem was depopulated and destroyed. The temple was demolished. The priesthood and the king were deported. That destruction came about because of what the Lord had predicted by his servants, the prophets. Those same prophets had also promised that there was going to be a turnaround, there was going to be a restoration after a long period of exile. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel had prophesied about the day when the Lord would return to his people. He would restore the people to the land, the city and the temple would be rebuilt, the priesthood recommissioned and the king reinstalled on the throne. Well, the people of God endured that long uh, exile in Babylon. They were clinging to those promises of the good things still to come. And then finally, second date, 539 BC, the Persian emperor Cyrus defeats the Babylonians. He releases the people of God. He says, you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple there. And they come back and there's great excitement because they think, yes, this is the moment that we've been waiting for. This is the moment when God is going to give us everything that we've been looking for. And then for 18 years or more, 
they lived in disappointment. You heard a little bit of about that, a little bit of that last week in the book of Haggai. They came back and it was drought conditions. The temple was still in ruins. Everything they did just seemed to fall apart in their hands. And they were wondering, has God given up on us? Is God ever going to deliver on those promises? Which brings us now to the third date in the series 520 BC, which is not only the date of the book of Haggai, it's also the date of these visions in the book of Zechariah. At that point in time, God told his people, Zechariah chapter 1 verse 3, return to me and I will return to you. Zechariah tells us that the people of God responded in obedience. They did turn back to the Lord and the rest of the book of Zechariah is explaining what the Lord is just about to do now that you have returned to him. The overall purpose of the book is to reassure the people of God that God is indeed about to fulfil those promises that he had made through the former prophets. The eight visions in the first six chapters of the book of Zechariah are saying God is going to give you back everything that you lost in 586 BC. I've listed it there on, on page 8. And you see it unfolding in a series of visions. So Zechariah 1 promises a return of the Lord to his people. Zechariah 2 promises the repopulation of Jerusalem. Zechariah 3, a recommissioned priesthood. Zechariah 4, a rebuilt temple. Zechariah 5, a removal of sin. And Zechariah 6, a restoration of the Davidic line. And look at that, they all start with the letter R. If I achieve nothing else out of today's sermon, I'm hoping that you will go home and read the book of Zechariah, particularly this very strange, bizarre vision sequence. And with that little list in front of you, you'll think, ah, I get it, I understand what is going on. Zechariah is writing to a group of people who had returned from exile, but they had not yet experienced all the good things that God had promised. It's written to reassure them that God could be trusted, that they should keep on putting their hope in the promises of God, even when the evidence of their present circumstances seemed to point in the opposite direction. And as I said, that's where we live too, isn't it? We live in that gap between promise and fulfilment, between the now and the not yet. Uh, we do believe that God has put his Christ on the throne. Christ rules from the throne over the entire universe. Everything is in his powerful hand. And yet you look around at our world and you think, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like God is on the throne. What is going on? Why, why don't we see the church triumphant? Why don't we see God ruling with might and power? Well, Zechariah 8 is written to reassure God's people of what it's going to look like when God begins to work. Uh, today, I want to focus on just one of Zechariah's eight visions, but let me show you how the whole sequence of visions hangs together. And again, I've got a little diagram that might help, which is on the top of page nine. The eight visions work together as a cohesive unit. There are two visions in the middle, which are framed by three visions on either side. And there's a kind of inverse relationship between the first three visions and the last three visions. The first three visions, the cumulative picture, is about a movement towards Jerusalem. That is, God returning to Jerusalem, his people returning there, things getting better in Jerusalem. And then the last three visions are all about a movement away from Jerusalem, basically, iniquity being banished from Jerusalem, relocated to a new house to be built in Babylon. So the, if you like, the first three visions are about God comes, the last three visions are about God goes, uh, sin goes, and then in the middle, 
we have these core visions, the number there, visions four and visions five, which are going to explain how this great change is going to come about. They're all about a temple priest called Joshua in vision number four and a temple builder named Zerubbabel in vision five. Together, Joshua and Zerubbabel are going to be the means by which God is going to restore the temple, remove sin, return to his people. Zechariah 4 is the vision that we're going to look at today, the one about Zerubbabel, the temple builder. Let me, let me confess, the vision is confusing when you first read it. The chapter begins and ends with a vision of a gold lampstand, a seven-branched lampstand known as a menorah. Uh, it was, this one was ablaze with light because it's being fed by oil from two olive trees. You see the vision there itself in verses 1 to 5. Clearly, Zechariah the prophet has no idea what it means, so we can be forgiven for not understanding it either because he's asking the angel what, what's going on. And then he gets an explanation at the, the other end of the chapter, verses 11 to 14, where we're told about that the seven lights and the two olive trees and what they mean. What is a little bit odd is in the middle of this vision are these oracles about Zerubbabel and the, build, the building of the temple. At the very point when we're expecting the angel to explain what the lampstand represents, we get the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel instead. Let me explain how it all fits together. The message of the chapter as a whole, that is, the vision of the gold lampstand ablaze with light, is meant to represent a restored and fully functional temple. In the Old Testament, back in the book of Exodus, they had this seven-branched lampstand, this menorah, which was to be always kept alight to signify that God was in the house. And so what's happening here is that that symbol in the Old Testament of God being in the house becomes the symbol of an operative temple. In this vision, the focus isn't on the lampstand itself, but the fact that it's ablaze with light. That is, it's not a static lampstand doing nothing, it's, it's a lit lampstand. These lights, according to verse 10, represent God's eyes, God's presence. That is, this lampstand, ablaze with light, says this temple is where God is dwelling in the midst of his people. Like the lampstand in the tabernacle that was previously kept alight, this lit lampstand says God is in the house. Now, remember when Zechariah is given this vision, God is not in the house because there isn't a house. The temple is nothing more than a pile of rubble and it doesn't look like there's going to be a temple any day soon. Exactly five months prior to this vision, they had commenced the rebuilding of the temple. You heard about that last week in the book of Haggai. But at this early stage, there was not much to show for their labours. Ezra chapter 3 tells us that there were some people there watching this new temple being founded, the foundations being laid, and they were old enough to remember the first temple. So the temple of Solomon in all its glory, that temple that took seven years to build and 40,000 people of conscripted labour and all of the accumulated wealth that David before him and then Solomon were able to amass, that glorious temple, they looked at this new structure that was being built and they cried, tears streaming down their faces because they realised by comparison how pathetic this new temple was going to be. It was only a fraction of the size. It had a fraction of the glory. 
compounding their problems were the political situation in which they found themselves. They were not a free state. They were subject to the Persian Empire. According to Ezra chapter 5, the governor at that stage, responsible for the, the, uh, the region in which they lived, had sent a damning letter to King Darius to, to try and stop the rebuilding work. I am sure that, that to the Israelites living in Jerusalem at that stage, it must have looked like the completion of the temple was never, never, never going to happen. There was a massive gulf between what God had promised and the harsh realities of their present circumstances. How was God going to make that vision a reality? Well, the answer is in that oracle to Zerubbabel in verses 6 to 10. This explains how we're going to get from no temple to fully functional temple. The answer comes in two words from the Lord, actually. The first word of the Lord in verses 6 to 7 is addressed to Zerubbabel himself. Zerubbabel was the Persian-appointed governor of Judah at the time, but much more significantly for us, Zerubbabel was a direct descendant of King David. In fact, he was the heir to the throne. This is really important because of promises that God had made way, way back, back, back to King David, that one of David's offspring would be the one who would build a house for the Lord. Uh, building a house for the Lord was a very messianic thing to do, little M Messiah, not big M Messiah, and Zerubbabel is going to be commissioned to do a very messianic thing here to re-establish God's house. He's going to be another guy as significant as King Solomon. The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel is this, not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. The success of the temple building project was not going to depend on Zerubbabel's skill or ingenuity, but on God and his enabling spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that Zerubbabel was supposed to sit on his hands and do nothing. He's not supposed to sit there and wait for God's spirit to do all of the work. In fact, verses 7 and then verse again, verse 9, assure us that Zerubbabel's own hands are going to be involved in this building project. He's going to be putting stones. He's going to be stretching out the, the plumb line to measure things. The assurance of God's enabling spirit is actually an encouragement to get on with the work rather than to sit back and let go and let God. Verse 7 promises that God will level the mighty mountains that are currently before Zerubbabel. Now, it is not clear whether these mighty mountains refer to the mountains of rubble that are presently on the building site or whether they are metaphoric for the mountains of trouble that they are facing from their Persian overlords. But in, in one way, it doesn't matter because the point is that whatever the obstacles are, the Lord is going to clear them away. Whatever the mighty mountain is that's blocking the completion of the task, the Lord is the one with the earth-moving equipment. The end result will be that Zerubbabel will bring out the top stone, the capstone. That stone was the, the final key stone at the top of the building, indicating that the construction is just about complete. And so when Zerubbabel is bringing it out, it means the building is just about done and the people are going to respond with great excitement and say, grace to it, or as we would say, God bless it, grace upon it, asking that God would uh, complete this temple and make it his home again. The second word from the Lord is in verses 8 and 9, and this oracle reiterates the same message of encouragement 
that was given to Zerubbabel, but this time the word is actually directed to the community as a whole. The Lord is reassuring them that the hands of Zerubbabel that have laid the foundations of the temple will be the hands that also complete it. Humanly speaking, they had every reason to doubt that God would do this. They are demoralised and dejected, and the Lord knows this and acknowledges this. In verse 10, he says that there are those who despise the day of small things, those people who had written off the temple project as pathetic, who remembered the grandeur of of Solomon's temple and seeing this new thing as, as a day of small things. But God promises that he is, going to deter, he is going to turn their dejection into rejoicing. Verse 10, For whoever despises the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These oracles are an encouragement to the people of God in the face of pretty discouraging circumstances not to give up, to recognise that God will do what he promised. His dwelling place is going to be established. It's going to happen through the hands of his chosen temple builder, no matter how pathetic or small it looks right now. Zerubbabel is going to be one of the two sons of oil that are spoken of in verse 14. Now, you'll see that the NIV translation has these are the two anointed. Uh, Literally, it is these are the two sons of oil that serve the Lord of all the earth. The reason that they're the sons of oil is because it's picking up the metaphor of being the two olive trees. That is, these are the people who will supply the oil, that will feed the lamp, that will make the light glow. And if you think about what the light means, it actually means the presence of God in the temple. So that's a pretty big deal. The actions of these human beings is actually going to contribute to God being in the house. In case you're wondering, Zerubbabel is one of the two sons of oil. The other one is Joshua, the high priest. He's referred to in the previous vision, back in chapter 3. Together, Joshua, the temple builder, and... Sorry, Joshua, the temple priest, and Zerubbabel, the temple builder, they will be the two sons of oil who will make the temple work again. They have a key role in God's plan to come and dwell with his people. That's a big deal, isn't it? What's being promised in Zechariah chapter 4 points forward in a very special way to Jesus. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the ultimate temple. If the temple represents the dwelling place of God with humanity, well, that that is Jesus. In John chapter 2, Jesus says that it is actually through his resurrection that God is going to build a new temple, a new meeting place between God and mankind. But what is God's strategy to build that house, that new temple? Well, it actually began on a day of small things. It began on a day of apparent weakness and failure. To the outward observer, Good Friday looked pathetic, just another dead martyr on a cross. But then God raised Jesus from the dead. And as unlikely and indeed as impossible as it seems, God established the new temple through the resurrected body of Jesus. And now, where we meet with God is not in a building in Jerusalem, but through a person. We now meet with God through this temple when Christians become part of Christ's body. 
As the Apostle Peter says in our second reading from 1 Peter, we are like living stones being built into a spiritual house. But, but here's the twist. It's not just that we are passive stones built into a temple, built into this, this, this spiritual structure. Our role is also to help others to be incorporated into that temple. So Peter says that we are both living stones and we are a royal priesthood. Okay, the metaphor is overloaded. Don't try and work out how it works. But, but here's the big idea. We are not just part of this new spiritual temple. We are also, like Zerubbabel, ourselves temple builders. We have a role to build the church. Zechariah 4 is therefore a challenge to us to persevere, to persevere with the hard work of building the temple of the Lord, which means for us building up Christ's church by sharing Christ's gospel. We must not give in to the discouragement of our own day of small things. Instead, we've got to press ahead in hope. We've got to look to the day when God is going to keep his promises and we're going to see that great final day and rejoice. We need to remember that the day of small things is so often how God works. God's way is not by might and not by power. God's way looks weak and pathetic. If, if you want to know what it looks like, think about Zerubbabel standing there physically exhausted, despairing that this is ever going to come together. If you want to know what it looks like, think of Jesus hanging there on the cross. What we want is church triumphant, isn't it? We, we want to see uh, Christ's rule over the nation manifest on this earth. We want to see people come flooding into uh, a new relationship with Christ and, and flooding into this church. And, well, yes, we, we might want might and power. We might want to see our churches overflowing, but we must not so long for the flood of people coming to Christ that we despise the trickle of ones and twos. Because in my experiences, that is how the kingdom grows. It grows by the, the trickle of one and twos, not by the great flood of people. Zechariah 4 reminds us that temple building, gospel ministry, is a day of small things. Slow, often unrewarding, outwardly unimpressive, facing opposition and setback, and yet the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. Zechariah 4 reminds us that whilst we must be very careful not to overvalue our own importance to God's plans, we must be equally careful not to undervalue it either. Joshua and Zerubbabel were two human beings used by the Lord to do remarkable things at a particular point in history. You wouldn't have thought it, but within five years of that vision being given, they actually did complete the temple. Sacrifices were recommenced. Uh, God's people again had God dwelling in their midst. So God did amazing three things through the faithful work of those men and that generation. Zechariah 4 calls on us, likewise, to serve the Lord of all the earth, not giving in to discouragement, but pressing ahead in hope, looking to the day of final completion. And to do this, we've got to commit ourselves to building God's house with all our labour and all his energy, knowing that it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, the Lord of all the earth, choose to involve us in your plans to reach this world with the gospel of your Son. 
Heavenly Father, help us to be faithful to this task of building a spiritual house by being that royal priesthood that you have called us to be. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us not to give in to discouragement, but to recognise that you are at work even in the day of small things and to press ahead in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.